This week on BASIC, John Stewart. I had a very particular idea of what I would want to do with it because I'd done so many things where I was sort of playing to the structure of, oh, it's a talk show on MTV. I will design that. But it wasn't what I wanted. I accepted the job and I came up and I had a meeting there. So I walked into the room and the first thing, there's a guy in the back, one of the writers, and he goes, just to let you know, we're not doing some MTV bullshit here. This is a real show. And I go, what? You know, we're not doing music. This is no bullshit. And I was like, I don't know if you've been told like what I my idea was for, you know, where I wanted to take things. But it wasn't so much almost what they were saying. It was the hostility with which they were saying. It. And then I came home from the meeting and I called James and I said, get me out of this. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive. And if you're a Daily Show fan, this is definitely your moment of zen. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And this is The Daily Show. Actually, it's a podcast about The Daily Show. Well, Jen, as you mentioned, we got a pretty special guest to kick off season three of Basic, and it's part one of a conversation with my old colleague and friend, John Stewart. Yeah, I'm pretty excited, Doug, and also a little bit nervous. The Daily Show under John was one of the most important shows in modern cable television history. It was smart, it was funny, it was award-winning, and it was groundbreaking. I think it changed late-night comedy and even the way we view and absorb the news. But we're also going to hear about John's career before he landed that great gig. That's right. I know John a, a pretty long time, so long I can remember when he still smoked cigarettes and ate red meat. So we're going to dig a little deep here into his roots on episode one. We'll talk about his uh, time at MTV and something called the Comedy Channel, and uh, we'll take it from there. And don't forget, this is actually part one of a two-part conversation. We'll be back next week with part two. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the first half of our discussion with John Stewart. And as always, Doug and I will close out the show with some of our reflections on that discussion. Hey, it's John Stewart, and welcome to Basic. How you doing, man? Wait, welcome to what? To Basic. That's the name of the show. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was like <laughs> the the Doug and Jen show. I, it's called the Basic. It's called it's just basic. basic with an exclamation oh. point. Huh? The exclamation point is important. I think. Yeah. I, I, so it's it's not Basic. It's Basic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Right. Like as in Basic Cable. Right. Oh. Uh, see. See. See what I did Doug. there. You're so far. Oh, fuck. You're so far ahead of me on this. It's uh, it's unbelievable. Basic, basic cable. That's what we. That's what we did. We worked. That's together. what we did. Yeah, yeah. That's where we. Yeah, basic that's, cable. That's how we know each other. That is how we know each other. Speaking of which, yes. We. This is the first. We asked this question. Is our traditional first question we ask to every guest, which is, do you remember when you first saw cable television? Sure. Tell us. Yeah, it was. It's pr pretty high. <laughs> as most of us were back then and uh no i don't I, I don't think i remember the first time i saw basic cable i remember the first time i saw mtv no oh. because i don't think basic cable same thing kind of synonymous at a synonymous, certain point yeah, but uh, i would imagine i clicked on to you know the weather channel or a and e at some point and didn't quite register like this Hitler documentary is very different. I'm receiving it in a different way. Uh, but I do remember MTV being wildly different and, and seeing that in a, in a, you know, I had moved off campus and we were pretty high. And I think 
Duran Duran came on or some shit. <laughs> and the whole world opened up, Douglas. The whole world. Well, you just you just said two trigger words for my co-host. Uh, yes. One was talking about your college, and uh, the second <laughs> one was talking about Duran Duran. So I'll let Jen take it from here. Yes, I was hungry you. like the wolf, Jen. Hungry. <laughs> I, like I, the I wolf. still am. I still am. Uh, so you you referred to your campus. You went to the best college in in the country, William and Mary, as did I. Um, and did you, you really go there? When did you I get did. out? Uh, Ninety four. So ten years behind you. I just missed you. Just just a little. <laughs> just a decade. <laughs> uh, obviously, you played soccer there. I believe your major was psychology. Is that right, Jen? I'm getting very uncomfortable right now. I'm, <laughs> Why? You think I'm stalking you? You know too much. It's called uh, doing your research. That was. I have a psychology degree, and I played. Yes, I played soccer. Were, I mean, were you politically engaged at all at that point in your life, like paying attention to the news, or was that something that you didn't really think about until later? No, no, no. I was. I. I mean. You know, it was obviously a very different world. I mean, Mm -hmm. between social media and and the kind of information, people were not engaged to the extent that they're engaged now, as in the relentlessness uh, of engagement. But Mm -hmm. for, I'd say, the general obliviousness of the decade, remember this was early Reagan, the me decade, uh, or just past the me decade, I was, I thought, relatively engaged based on the context of the times. Mm -hmm. Okay. This was 60s. Everybody was engaged. 70s. Everybody started to tune out. Cocaine came into the picture. And then in the 80s, it was all Gordon Gecko and nobody gave a shit about anything. And let, let's move on. So in, in that era and in that context, I think I was relatively, I was relatively engaged. So you Were roll you, out of, whoops, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, no, 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 follow up. <laughs> um, Jen, you know, I wanted to point out that Doug has no on-camera experience, and so he well, is going to continue some. to do these types of things, Jen. Interrupt me? Oh, it happens constantly. The lack of professionalism. And you can see from basically you've been placed in, I think, a beautiful room with a fireplace. Uh, Doug has been relegated to, I believe, where the janitor uh, keeps all of the things he sells on eBay. <laughs> So you can see there's a there's a, a difference in terms of status and talent. Right. Well, I try not to bring that to his attention too much, you know, <laughs> trying to keep the power dynamics even. I think that's wise. No, I was just going to ask, like, were you at that time, were you a Democrat? Were you a Republican? Were you not affiliated with a party? Like, did you align yourself in any uh, way? Party yeah, affiliation, I don't think was as, you know, again, I probably, you know, I, I didn't think as much about it, but I, but I would almost... The entirety of the Republican Party at that time was, I think, more moral majority. Like that was mm-hmm. the uh, general energy flow uh, that went through there. So, yeah, I was the antithesis of of all that, that sort mm-hmm. of new conservatism. So, yeah, no, I uh, the Reagan years, all, all those things, I probably. Yeah, wanted no part of it. And then you ended up on a, on a, on stage in comedy club. So what was what was that journey? So you graduate school had was. Stand up and comedy was that what you decided to do when you left school? No, I I, I decided to bartend. I went back to <laughs> I, I lived in in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, with a couple of friends of mine in uh, a house that was quite drafty, if I'm being honest. Uh, but like two hundred bucks a month, so uh, and I bartended at this crazy, incredibly legendary punk club. 
called City Gardens. Yeah, cool place. In Trent, New yeah. Jersey, yeah, on Calhoun Street. Uh, and it was fucking fantastic. And I did that for a couple of years. And then on a, a bit of a whim or an impulse, I sold all my shit and moved to New York and had a six-week lease. I was I knew where I was going to live for six weeks. I didn't have a job, but uh, I knew that, you know, having, I, I knew that once I got out of school and I was like, work, I was working at that club and I was working at this bar called The Bottom Half underneath a liquor store uh, on Route 1 in New Jersey. And I remember thinking like, hmm, so this is it. Uh, and when I got to that punk club, I was like, nope, world's filled with possibilities, filled with interesting people doing interesting shit. And it inspired me to kind of take a little more agency in, in the life I was going to live and moved to New York City and, and just thought I'd try writing and stand up and whatever other shit I could get my hands on. And I mean, did you have thoughts about going into comedy before, like when you were younger, or was this something that just kind of hit you once you got out of college? I mean, I, you know, again, like I didn't, I don't come from showbiz people. And, and as, as you guys know, like the world was just different than you weren't exposed to the kinds of things, but yeah, like I used to watch Carlin and Steve Martin and all those guys and think like, huh, I think my brain works in a similarly eccentric fashion as that, that may be something mm -hmm. that, that may be a place because I always felt very disassociated from the general pathways that people were supposed to go. I just never, it never felt like my brain clicked into any of those tracks. Mm -hmm. So, and the first time I went to a comedy club, that was definitely when it clicked in. When I, I mm -hmm. sat down and I watched people and I thought, that's fucking, that's exactly how I think I got to do that. So you started applying your trade late at night at uh, comedy clubs uh, in Manhattan, right? And uh, at some point you catch the attention of a very early version of Comedy Central and you were tapped to co-host a show or host a show called Short Attention. This is before my time there called Short Attention Span Theater. No, you know what it was? It was so Comedy Central at that point was not Comedy Central. It was Comedy Channel. It was still the Comedy Channel, the HBO version. And then there was another one called Ha that was... And I can't remember who ran that one, but somebody owned Time Warner owned one. Somebody owned Viacom ran hot. Oh, is that what that was? Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, Viacom it was MTV hot. and HBO. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a buddy of mine who was a comic was working and you know, the timeline and all this shit is so confusing to me, but so he was producing some, a show called the Rachel sweet show for uh former pop star comedy channel former pop star lovely person very smart mm -hmm. very funny so as a comedy writer writes on sitcoms yeah. out here in hollywood yes. yeah yes worked on it yeah i've worked with her she was lovely uh yeah. so he got a gig you know back then we were all schmucks everybody was just banging around working for 15 bucks a night 50 bucks on the weekend he got a job one of the first people well, that I knew who got like a real opportunity out in Los Angeles. And I think he got a job as a staff writer on Murphy Brown. His name is, you, you may remember it, Michael Patrick King. Uh, oh, oh yeah. He was a stand-up <laughs> and uh, was wow a, a friend of mine. And so he had gotten the job producing uh, on Rachel Sweet. He was going to be moving to L.A. to do Murphy Brown, I believe. And he asked me if I would like to be a writer on that show. And so that was my first like job job in other than banging around the clubs and trying to, you know, do the one nighters in Jersey and 
you know, the Roger Paul gigs where you're at a Fuddruckers in upstate New York. <laughs> uh, regular gig, like, you know, basic cable, as we all remember the business model, 400 bucks, 400 bucks a week. Basic cable, it's not, it's, it's not a profitable business. We can't pay you more than what you might make, let's say, at a malt shop. Uh, so uh, I got a gig writing for Rachel Sweet, and six weeks later, the show was canceled. And there was some finger pointing my way. Everything was fine until <laughs> you showed up there. But there was a guy there, I think, who, uh, you know, I caught their eye doing something or other. And so when Short Attention Span Theater came up, I got called to audition and ended up getting that. And that was probably 91 or 92, something along those lines. And then you're on TV. Not really. I was on comedy. <laughs> I was on in like, I think the, the distribution at that time was like some survivalist camps in Montana. Like I don't, it was, you know, you, you got it on satellite. And I think, I think the, you know, the distribution was probably 7 million homes, 10 million homes, something crazy, you know, but it, it, it that was the, the beginnings of it. And then, yeah. and then ultimately I think they merged with Ha. Right. So, right. Uh, the comedy channel, uh, the, the cable operators said to the, to, to HBO and MTV, look, we don't want two comedy channels. They both kind of suck, by the way. Why don't you guys figure it out and get back to us? And they decided to merge and create Comedy Central. That's right. But com Comedy Channel had like, they were doing shit. Like they had built a little they had studio. Alan Havey and Rachel Sweet Havey, and John Stewart. Tommy Sledge, Higgins Boys and Gruber. But it was, all, it all took place in this little studio on 23rd street on the east side and so it was a very communal like all the shows taped out of this one sort of lazy susan studio of right. little sets there was like five little sets Havy was the the late night show higgin boys and gruber was kind of the sketch show tommy sledge was just this he was like this character he was a stand-up whose persona was an old 40s detective so all his right, jokes had right. you know walking sticks and all that kind of lingo <laughs> <laughs> and it was all just kind of this little community they were trying to do like the mtv of comedy that's correct yeah and they that, you know they got that part right yeah no question and so that's that's where it was all going on it was really fun and exciting and it was a great time to be over there and i worked with a, a comedian named patty rossborough who was just so fun and such a lovely person. And we we had a blast introducing, at that time what they were doing is they were just cannibalizing stand-up. So they would take these stand-up clips and we would be VJs to the stand-up as opposed to VJs for the music. And that was it. That was the business there model, man. <laughs> and then years later, uh, two guys from Colorado made a cartoon called South Park and the rest is history. We'll get to and, we'll get to, we'll get to that. Oh, we're gonna walk through the whole fucking thing. How long are we gonna be here? <laughs> as long as it takes. As long as, long as it takes. Exactly. All right. Let me jump ahead. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So let's jump into MTV, which was a couple years later, right? Yeah. Did short attention theater for about a year. And then Patty had a kid. And I mean, this is back in the old days when they were like, yeah, you're not coming back. And I was like, she's not coming back. I'm not coming back. You know, like thinking like they'd be like, oh, okay, we'll have her back. And they were like, okay, (laughs) fine. You're all fucking disposable as far as we're concerned. So I left it. And that was, you know, I don't know. Early 90s. Yeah, yeah. And then a woman by the name of, you know her well, Eileen Katz, asked me if there was anything that I wanted to do at MTV. And I was like, of course. I remember having a a big meeting. I had a big meeting at MTV and they wanted me to pitch a couple ideas. And I was like, I I got this. And uh, the first was like, what if we did the real world in space? You know, some sh- like some ridiculous <laughs> like. What if we get a space station and th- th- did the real world and did th- that? Th- and uh, you know, I could just tell that the glazed over look at the meeting. Uh, and then I was like, or a talk show, and they were like, yeah, let's do that. Well, wait, you're 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 missing a chapter though. Well, no, Eileen hired me to do a show called You Wrote It, You Watch It, which was the original uh, MTV. Basically, the idea was people would write stories that they had experienced their dreams or whatever and there was this incredibly talented young sketch group called state and they would act it out these letters along with some other cast members and i would just wander around the meatpacking district taping wraparounds <laughs> because everything at mtv was very hip back then and they were all like dennis leary's hot right now why don't we all stand in front of graffiti and see what we can do with it <laughs> So we all went down there in black leather jackets and stood in front of graffiti and smoked and went, coming up next. And that was, you wrote it, you watch it. We had Carrie Kinney and Tom Lennon on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
What was your relationship like with those guys from the state? I, because I love those guys. Apparently, they drove um, <clears throat> Mike Judge crazy. They were chaos uh, in the MTV offices. Yeah, but I love that. They, they were chaos agents. But I, I love that. I think, as a matter of fact, I think on the last episode of our talk show, I invited the state on with chainsaws, and they ju we just destroyed the set. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Right, right. Uh, I forgot about that. But they were so talented and so like young. I mean, I think they were. They were right out of NYU, literally. They might have still been in college. Yeah, they're one one or two might have might have still been in college when we first yeah. started. Yeah, yeah, they were very young, but just hilarious. And and there was a million of them. And, so and, they, they were, and by the <laughs> way, not not nine out of eleven went on to like a. They're still working today. It's amazing. Nine eleven. Mm. <laughs> oh God, a conspiracy. Interesting numerology. Interesting. I wonder what the Saudis would have to say about this. Mm. So then, then you do what really I think you know, kind of brought you to much wider attention, which was the Jon Stewart show. Your, your, that's right. That was the, your very first own show and, and, and a talk show, right? I had this idea. <laughs> what if I told a few jokes and then interviewed celebrities about <laughs> projects they're working on? And then after that <laughs> short interview, we would hear music from a hot band, like a song. And that would be it. That would be the show. Some jokes interview and a music no one had ever done it i gotta tell you that it went like hotcakes i mean people were like and they have a clip of the project they're talking about oh this is something i've not i've not seen this before no i think we did a talk show and the big the big difference was like i sat on car seats <laughs> like you know it was mtv so you couldn't do it you had to it, i did a talk show but at a dutch angle and they were like, okay. In a leather jacket. <laughs> In a leather jacket on a Dutch angle. And people are like, I've never seen anything like this. Brilliant. Also, I mean, no one had ever seen a white guy do it either. That was uh, what was so groundbreaking. And a Jewish guy. I mean, to boot. I was, right. I was breaking ground. I was breaking ceilings. I couldn't even see any. There was just glass falling all over the place. Phenomenal. But they let me do whatever I wanted. And, and we, we had a ball. I mean, it was, it was, it was a ball. Ran on MTV for like a year or two and then went right. to sin when we decided we could no longer afford it we, it went into syndication with our sister company paramount well you know what happened arsenio left that's he right. retired and i was at mtv and i guess paramount which had produced arsenio decided you know what would be the most organic transition in the history of talk shows if we went from arsenio to this guy because the audience <laughs> is such a natural fit, and uh, yeah, that was a different that was a different experience of working for MTV in the world of syndication. Right? Oh man, I remember. I think we were probably three shows in, and I had this great idea. I was going to have Dave Attell come on. Dave was writing on the show, and everybody knows Dave's comedy is fucking hilarious. I had this big idea that uh, you know one of my guests. That night was going to be Adolf Hitler. We were going to have Dave Attell come on. Nobody, nobody knew what Hitler had been up to. We were going to have Hitler come on, and he was going to talk about what he was working on. And we brought a clip. As you can imagine, the audience did not realize how arch and meadow we were and how clever we were. And so I said, our next guest, uh, you haven't heard from him in a while. He uh, is one of the most notorious villains in history. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Adolf Hitler. Mattel comes out, is Adolf Hitler, completely dressed in Nazi paraphernalia, holding a bagel with cream cheese. And the crowd 
as you would imagine, booed like it was Elon Musk at a Dave Chappelle show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we did a whole, I think Dave's first line was a, these are delicious. I don't know what I was so afraid of with these people, you know, and the, and the, and the thing just went off the rails from there. And not even at the end of the show in the commercial break, the red phone that we didn't even know was plugged in started to ring. And, you know, then, then everybody was running around and it was a fire drill. And you, John, you need to go to the control room, Beth McCarthy, who we all know and love. A great Beth McCarthy director, best director of all things live and otherwise was in the control room just this look on her face because she was hearing the conversation behind her uh and i came in picked up the phone and they said we will never air this show and you will never do that again and so i think four shows into our run we aired a repeat <laughs> of the show <laughs> oh wow <laughs> off to a blazing start blazing start and it just <laughs> went uphill from there yeah how did no one know what you were going to do beforehand? Because they were in Los Angeles and we were in New York. And okay. generally the pace of, of what you do, they don't expect you to be an idiot. You know, they're not, <laughs> they're not expecting that you're going to, so they weren't necessarily, it's, it's a little trick I learned and, and I used it to great effect at Comedy Central, uh, which Doug will tell you, which is volume. If you, if you, put a fire hose of content on them at a certain point, they're just going to be like, sure, it's fine. <laughs> Nobody wants to work that much. And so it, it got out there and it went, I mean, it's a show that began with David Tell dressed as Hitler and ended with giant condors sitting on an audience member's neck, pecking at them with the audience shouting, sue them, sue them. <laughs> Are, are there things that you take from that experience and also your experience at MTV that yeah. helped inform what you did ultimately at The Daily Show? Yeah. If you're going to use birds of prey, even <laughs> if they're, uh, you know, scavengers, you just got to make sure they're fed beforehand. Because to their mind, what you may see is, you know, a lovely couple from Poughkeepsie who are just in town to see a show, they might look at as dinner. So you have to be very careful. Got to feed the condors. Let me say this. And, and this is for anybody who's listening. And, and you got to feed the condors. You got to <laughs> feed them beforehand. It's true. Yeah. Actually, I have an important question. Do you remember when you first met Doug and what your impression of Doug was? So I first met Doug. Leave corduroys out of it, John. Well, then I can't, then I can't tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So, Go ahead. Have at it. Down in Florida. And it's, it's MTV spring break and MTV spring break is, is the first legalized Bacchanal ever to be shown on uh, standard cable television. This is back when rules don't matter. And, you know, basically cable stations were encouraging, let's say irresponsible sex. They were, they were encouraging people who were younger than the age of drinking to uh, not only do that, but to also randomly hook up with other people of the same age and inebriation level. And I'm already 29, I think 29 or almost 30 years old. And I'm down there partnered with like the wheeze, you know, so you got one guy. <laughs> also a podcast also, guest. Also, also a podcast guest. Come one up. guy running around Daytona Beach going like, and you know, and I'm over there like, mm, I think I'm, I have a terrible lactose issue. I'm going to 
go up to the hotel. <laughs> so we're at a stone, I believe it was a stone temple pilots concert on the beach in Daytona. One of the greatest lineups of all time. Oh, of all time. What was the, do you remember no. the whole lineup? Tell me it, the whole yeah, lineup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Stone Temple Pilots, yeah. Living Color, yes. Soul Asylum, yes. Lenny Kravitz, The Black Rose. How 90s is that? Oh, God. I was going to say, this is the most 90s conversation I've had in a long time. Yeah. So it's jamming. And the whole time I'm there at the concert, I'm rocking, but I'm also hearing like, it almost feels like feedback or static. And I'm like, this is like, I, how... And I've worked in punk clubs. I've worked, I'm like, am I getting the Peter Townsend thing? Am I, did I blow an eardrum? Well, it wasn't any of those things. What it was, was the perpetual motion machine that was Doug Herzog wearing a pair of brown corduroys. <laughs> and like a cricket, when he would rub his legs together <laughs> and in living color and all the other bands, you would just hear... <laughs> Bopping up and down. Corduroy. Of course, that's what you wear to spring break. Uh, and that was uh, my introduction to the great Doug Herzog. Uh, I remember when I first met, I didn't meet John, but I, I, I saw John came to a game show run through that Eileen was doing for some bad game show yeah. in the, in an MTV conference room. And uh, you were a judge. You were a judge. Was that the Yahoo serious game? Or no, I, I did warm up for that or something. It could have been. And I don't think it was Yahoo. They hired Yahoo serious to host the game show. The, uh, the Australian comedian. Yeah, I do remember Yahoo series, that Australian guy. Oh, my God. So unfunny. Anyway, you were you were a judge, and you were really funny. You had a comment on stuff, and we left the the, the run-through. And I said, what did you think of the game show? I said, the game show was terrible, but the guy in the leather jacket and the Mets hat was really funny. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, she goes, that's Jon Stewart. I've been telling Here's you about what's it. Here's sad. I dressed the exact same way. And that's, that's how it all happened. But, yeah. So so the so the John Stewart show goes down in syndication flames. You did your like lost years out in LA. Never moved out to LA. Never actually lived here. No. Oh, I thought you lived here. You were just going back and forth? I did my lost years in a illegal sublet in New York. Ah. The only I, I went out to LA at two week pops, even when I did Sanders. I did Larry Sanders for two years. Right. And even writing and performing on that, I never moved there. Ah. I would only go out there for two to three weeks at a pop and I would live in a little hotel. You remember those old hotels that were every, every room's a yeah. suite, but what it really was, was just a studio with like that really long carpet and then two stairs. Right. And then you would step up the stairs. I can't remember. It might've been the, the Bellage. Oh, nice. And I would just live there for three weeks and, and then come commute back over to Radford and do that and come back. But I would never move there. So you were doing Sanders. You did a couple of movies, Mixed Nuts. That's Let's right. not forget Mixed Nuts. Great Christmas soundtrack, by the way. And, but you were. You, Absolutely. Eight, eight weeks in a trailer on the beach in. Uh, with Steve Martin. In Santa Monica with the greatest yeah. cast in the history of terrible <laughs> And movies. you were, you were still though, kind of considered the heir apparent to Letterman. Everybody always talked about you maybe one day at least at that time, you know, replacing Letterman. Was that a job that you ever really wanted? No. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it was, it's a huge job, but that was all, that all happened before ah. MTV. The MTV talk show was, so all of that was born of stand-up. And so when, if you remember when Dave left, yeah, at that time, the job that Conan got was the one that when Dave right. was leaving, late night 
1230 slot. That was, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were all, I mean, look, Dave was and is uh, everybody's sort of idol at that time. And, you know, I'd been fortunate enough to be on the show a bunch and uh, had a pretty good, you know, rapport with him. And then I think what happened was Lorne was going to produce it. And so he did a series of auditions to see. And I remember, you know, and th- that was back in the days, like you'd audition for something. And then like, if you got lucky enough, they'd fly you out. And we got flown out to do a night at the improv on Santa Monica. And it was going to be all the, all the folks that were up for it, which is such a, like you're all there, beautifully comfortable recipe for camaraderie. We were all there. It was myself and might've been Stilson, wow. Drew Carey and Paul Provenza, a bunch of us. And we all just performed for Lauren. That's right. At the Santa Monica improv. And the only guy who wasn't there was Conan. <laughs> the fix was in. <laughs> <laughs> not the fix. Just like, oh yeah, it's just is is not, none of us, I guess, particularly wore well that night. That was all before MTV talk show. So once once I did the MTV talk show and then the Paramount thing, like I knew that 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 was like not that I, I wanted to write or do stand up or other. So things. then, obviously, you changed your tune when the Daily Show possibility came around. What what made you want to go, oh, Doug? Back to doing that. Doug changed my. What's team. that? Doug changed my. Team. Oh, oh, tell me oh, more. No, well, I, I, you know, we heard, we actually heard a story. We had Madeline and Liz on. Um, mm-hmm. They sort of did the origin story of the Daily Show, and and one of the one of the things that Madeline said was when she she called you to get your advice about. Oh, she would. She, she, uh, no, going going maybe with Kilborn over to CBS. This is after Kilborn says he's leaving. Oh, and oh, she oh, called oh, oh, you oh. for advice, and you gave her some great advice. One of which was to stay with the Daily Show if you if you really loved it. But she said that you later said that that conversation with about the Daily Show was when you kind of decided maybe this was something for you. Is that true? Well, it was one of those things where I I had a very particular idea of what I would want to do with it was more. And the question was, is that something that you guys would be interested in more than it was anything else? Because I'd done so many things where I was sort of playing to the structure of, oh, it's a talk show on MTV. I will design that. But it wasn't what I wanted. And so this was a vehicle that I thought, oh, this this has the opportunity to become the thing that would be the most direct extension of me creatively that I could think of. But the question was, is that what you guys wanted? And that's where uh, that lunch that we all had kind of was the impetus for that the decision was if you guys were interested in that vision of it more than because I knew it was, you know, obviously a great vehicle with really smart, funny people attached to it. Yeah. And it was I mean, I, to be honest, I think, you know, we were we were you know, certainly Madeline and myself and Eileen, the people who were running, you know, the show and Comedy Central at that point, we were just huge fans. And so I think you could have told us you were going to have a tell on eating bagels dressed as Hitler every day. And we would have said, and we, and we would have said, yes. <laughs> Are you serious? I really, I thought I was persuasive that day. You were, well, we, 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 we wanted, we, first of all, we were, sh- we Son couldn't believe you were interested. You saw something clearly in the show that, you know, that had yet to be explored or be seen by anybody who was involved with it. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole story there. But, you know, we were, we were like, Oh my God, John wants to do the show. Let's do this show with and John and see what happens. Yeah. 
that's hilarious. And then I came and I, 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 I accepted the job and I came up and I had a meeting there before I took go. It was after Kilborn had left, I think. Kilborn announced he was leaving, but didn't leave till the end of the year. That's right. I had a meeting up there with all the writers. And then I came home from the meeting and I called James and I said, get me out of this. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. I don't know if you remember James calling you. Uh, at that point and saying, I, I, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I remember who is James. Oh, I'm James, sorry. James, Dixon. James, James Dixon, baby doll Dixon. Uh, oh, he constantly comes up in these conversations constantly because he's everywhere. <laughs> he is, he is the air that we breathe. He, uh, works not only with John, but with Stephen Colbert, yes. Jimmy Kimmel, Bill Simmons, right. and a, ho and a host of yes. others. And he and I have been working together since like 1988. Yes. 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 Two yes. schmucks. Why did you want to get out of it? Oh, because uh, I thought the, the people were insane. I thought they were totally <laughs> fucking insane and like assholes. Like I, I couldn't believe it. I remember I, we, we went to the meeting and I go in there and, uh, and this is the environment. But I had no idea. Like this was the like for me, just like blindsided by the whole like I didn't realize all the complicated politics of this place. Liz had just gotten into a terrible situation with the previous host where he had said like horrible things about her to a magazine. And then he got like, but I didn't. So I walked into the room and this is after like it'd been announced and all that shit. We sat down and the first thing, there's a guy in the back, one of the writers and he goes, just to let you know, we're not doing some MTV bullshit here. This is a real show. And I go, what? And from it, like, from there you're not going to change shit you know we're not doing music this is no bullshit and i was like i don't know if you've been told like what i my idea was for you know where i wanted to take things but that's that's not it but it wasn't so much almost what they were saying it was the hostility with which they were saying it that i was like oh this is going to be there was some toxicity back then in that room this is going to be bad yeah I can remember there was a dude. Who was the dude? Uh, uh, the correspondent, Brian Unger. Brian Unger uh, leaves the show and in his exit interview to the press says, why did you leave? And he goes, I wanted to leave while I could still be proud of what we did. Mm. That hasn't aged well. <laughs> and I'm reading this shit and I'm like, what am I getting myself into? So I immediately called James and I go, you got to get me out of this because I can't. I, I, like, this is crazy, right? You know, I'd worked with staffs before. I'd, I'd worked on the most, like, dysfunctional place in the world, which was the Sanders show. But when I walked into that room, I was like, this is going to be. Yeah. Ugly. Well, the dynamic of the show before you got there yeah. was it was kind of a producer and writer led show, right? Craig was more the, the vessel that everything yeah. went through. And you came in with an actual. That's right. Well, he, he played, played a character. A character. It was like close, close to, you know close to home but a character um <laughs> uh with all due respect to craig i mean uh yeah. he'd probably tell you the same I thing understand. there were listen when i first walked into the office there were a lot of mirrors in it. that was <laughs> first thing i did was like can we take some of these out here like i saw myself this morning i don't need to see this again it was like i fucking open a drawer and there'd be like a hand mirror in it always hairbrushes like, and mirrors what every is drawer happening here <laughs> but it, that that meeting was the uh, might might be the craziest meeting i'd ever been to what did James say to you to convince you to go back or, or what changed your mind? Baby, let me talk. Let me talk to Doc. Let me talk to Doc. You know, we're talk to him. We're going to see what's going on. Because this, this is fucked up. Babe, listen, here, I'm going to tell you something. You want out, you're out. But I'm going to tell you something. Let me, let me, let me talk to Doc. Let me straighten this. 
And then, then in a full show, of, his full show of support, John, I then uh, left the network probably about six weeks later. <laughs> well, so that was so. Doug, Doug reassures me that like, you know, look, it's a bumpy transition. They're all used to this one thing. Uh, everybody's on board with what you would like to do. It's all going to be fine. You have my word. And then six weeks later, he goes, I'm leaving for Fox. <laughs> what? Let the record show that John Stewart debuted on Comedy Central January 11th, 1999, which was my first day at Fox. Uh, ironically, <laughs> coincidentally, I lasted I lasted 15 months. John lasted 16 years. So, you know. So with Doug not there, and you, know, you got to understand, like, I worked with Doug, like, my whole career in television. Like Doug, Eileen, like those are the people, Judy McGrath, that I knew and and trusted. And not that the new people were, they were lovely. Mm -hmm. But the first two years of The Daily Show was like a Roman Coliseum. <laughs> like it was just a bloodbath. I mean, it was fucking awful. It truly was fucking awful. Like the kind of awful that your wife finds you in the living room at four in the morning, just smoking cigarettes and muttering on a couch. Like it was that kind of like just the opposite of anything that I wanted to be party to. It was rough. So when did it click? But, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Uh, when you started getting people in there who believed in the vision, because what I realized was they viewed it as almost an insult that, I mean, look, they created something really successful, you know, that done great with it. And there, here's this fucking guy walking in and being like, and so that naturally creates, you know, an antagonistic work relation. Like, and I can see it, you know, them being like, who the fuck are you to come in here and do that? But my perspective of it was like, oh, I'm, in fact, we had, I think there was another crazy meeting like three months later. Where I finally, I think what happened was the writers called me in to a meeting to tell me I wasn't allowed to change their jokes anymore. And that was our, it became notorious. It was known as like the fuck you meeting. And it was a notorious, it was one of those where I finally just go like, I'm just going to let you guys in on something. You work for me. I don't work for you. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let everybody in this room out of their contract. You're done. You don't have to be here anymore. Because I think before I got there, everybody had negotiated like a whole year because they were worried about continuity. I said, it's, you'll get paid, but you no longer have to be here. But if you come back, you come back with a different mindset of like, and you know, it, it, it didn't really change that much. But once those contracts expired and we brought people in that had, I think, less animosity, it, it made it. And again, I don't like, look, this was their house. Right. Mm -hmm. well, well, it was. Then it became your house. They didn't, they, they didn't quite figure that out. They didn't want, they didn't want the, new, the new tenant. I remember one of the producers leaving said to me, it, to me, it encapsulated the entirety of like the first pain of the two years. One of the producers, I could tell how uncomfortable Doug is. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, one of the producers uh, were at 
first of all, every party there ended in tears. <laughs> like they had like parties every three weeks and every one of them ended in tears. And Doug will tell like, I'm just, that's just not my scene. Like it's fine. There's a lot of emotion. So, there's a lot of emotion. So a uh, guy comes up to me at his party that he's leaving. And like, they used to do these roasts. And like at one of the roasts, one of the producers said to him, like, because he was, I think, married to one of the correspondents, like, I get a hard on whenever I think of your wife. And then like, like the whole fucking atmosphere there was like, no boundaries, no rules, no, it's like, it was fucking cool. Did, did you come to the night? I do you, Did you come to the night I got roasted? Because when yes. me, me, Kilborn and Brian Unger, you know, we're all roasted at the same time because we're all leaving at the same time. Yes. It was yes. brutal. Brutal. brutal like not <laughs> like not funny just like here's here's my first joke ray james i fucking hate you and you <laughs> suck and you're a sellout prick motherfucker good riddance and i'm like that had the rhythm of comedy <laughs> <laughs> like the meanest people i've ever seen in my life ray james the, ray, the great ray james wild so the producer comes up to me afterwards and he goes as i'm leaving here i just want to say one thing to you and i go what and he goes don't kill my baby. And it was that moment where I was like, okay, I think I get it now. These people don't know the difference between work and family. Mm. And so it was like having every, every day at work making the show was like Thanksgiving dinner with people you didn't get along with, mm. like your relatives. And it had that depth of anger and emotion and conflict all wrapped into one. And it was, that's a, that's a great analogy, by the way. I never, I never thought of it that way, but I think that's exactly spot on. That is how they looked at the show. But that's, and, and that ultimately is what happened. And it was one of those things. Look, and by the way, sometimes those environments, you get great shit and people thrive in it and all that. It just wasn't the environment that I could survive in. And unfortunately, as I would say to them, like, unfortunately, like this is, you work for me. Like that is just how it is. And like, ultimately I can design a situation where like you could feel heard, but I can never design a situation where like, it's not a democracy. Right. Mm -hmm. And if this environment, if a, if a more stable environment, like I was very clear and like, we're not going to be here till midnight every night. Like, that's just not how this shit's going to go. And we're going to come up with a system to make this doable. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, it was just. I think it, you know what it might've been. It was like the first years of SNL. Like it was a chaos agent, right. that show. Right. And that's how they dug it. Right. And then they turned it, then they turned it to a really well-oiled machine over the years. I think that was, and that was the real kind of difficulties. And it, it was painful. Wow. And truly, truly painful. I'm sure also to the people who were there, mm -hmm. who had this person just walk in there and turn the place completely fucking upside down to what they had what they had been accustomed to and what they had thought they maybe had signed up for. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I always felt, I always felt that I wish there would have been like a better understanding between all of us for that kind of shit. I mean, I clearly was not there, but it, it sounds like, I mean, it seems like the staff wasn't prepared for the fact that you were going to be in charge. And I don't know how to prepare someone for that. Or, or, ch or change things. Well, I, so it's funny. That's what informed me when Trevor was taking over is I spent that time trying to create a situation that would make sure that what we had all been through for those first two years back in the day 
would not be repeated right. because it wasn't fair to them and it wasn't fair. You did a great job setting the staff up for that. And Trevor, too, that that being said, they, you know, that was a difficult transition too. you know, change is hard, you know, change is very hard. And especially when you have stakeholders who were part of, you know, one of the biggest things that I would say before Trevor took over was, so I want you to look at this like the Daily Show is done. What we did over those 16 years is what we did, 17 years, whatever. You're starting a new show. And the one thing I hope you never, you know, have pop up in your mind when you're dealing with Trevor is that's not how we do right. things. Go into this with the idea that this is an opportunity to take this incredibly talented individual you got coming into this building and create something new. It'll probably have the bones and some things of a structure that you'll recognize, but you just completed something that I hope you're really proud of and that I hope you feel like, you know, you contributed to, but now you've got an opportunity to adapt, to change, to do something different with a new person that could be incredibly exciting. And think of all the shit you're going to learn, but don't hang on to the resentments of past. You know, those shows create circadian rhythms. They, they pattern you. And so your day is very regimented just so you can get things done. And if you cling to that, well, at 10 o'clock, actually, we have this meeting. Right. That, that was a different show. Mm -hmm. And I think that was what I didn't understand walking into the building in 1999 was they're not they're not fighting me they're they believe in their creative enterprise and they think it's the same enterprise they think i'm tricking out whatever the car is and they like this car they like the way it drives and so it was a misunderstanding of purpose yeah. not not everybody right. mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, and the other side of it is like, they didn't know whether or not I was going to be driving them off a cliff. Right. Which could, but in my mind, I had, I had very much been of the mindset of like, this is the one that I'm going to be myself, right. that I'm going to put myself into mm -hmm. and I'm going to, and, and, and let's design that in, in that regard. All right, so there you go, part one of John Stewart, and boy, those uh, those first painful days of the Daily Show are are clearly still very, very clear to him. I feel like I worked there after listening to John talk about it. <laughs> he well, he went, he he took us inside and and behind the scenes, and uh, you know, I I remember some of those uh, uh, instances before I you know I actually had left Comedy Central right before he started, but yeah, I mean he. Uh, he a, it was a tough transition, um, moving into that seat and and kind of taking over the show and and getting, as he said, everybody rowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, as the outsider in the room here, and our listeners who have who listen to all of our episodes will know, we had Liz Winstead and, and Madeline Smithberg on very recently, who created the Daily Show, and I think Liz was gone by the time John got there, but Madeline was still there. That's Please right. correct me if I've got that that's, wrong. That's correct. And it, it's just been really interesting to me to hear kind of both sides of that conversation about how that transition occurred and and how people felt. And I just, you know, not to be uh, wishy-washy, but I, I can see from both sides why it would have been painful. 
Yeah, and it, it was it was really painful for him, and and you know for for a period of time until they sort of found their way. The interesting thing that I that he said that stuck with me was in talking about the old John Stewart show on MTV. He said, even though it was his show and his name was on it, he said I was doing a show for MTV and I was trying to fit into MTV and not necessarily be himself one hundred percent. And he made that decision with The Daily Show to do the show that he wanted to do. You know, and that kind of ties in with something that you and I have talked about a lot on here, which is the idea that cable brands have sort of ceased to exist in the same way that they did. The positive side of that for for people like John is that you could come in and, and create your brand within the platform of another brand, which I think probably when he was on MTV, at least at that time, it would have been really hard to do that. Well, yeah, and MTV, you know, we, for a long time... We didn't want anything to be bigger than the brand. And that's why right. the VJs were, you know, sort of, for lack of a better term, generic. The, the, you know, the brand, the star of the show was MTV. And while Comedy Central had a great brand, there's no question during the heyday of The Daily Show, Jon Stewart's brand, you know, shone pretty bright and may have, in fact, been bigger. Yeah. I mean, I think um, some people turn on a show to watch the show. It doesn't matter who's there. And I think after John took over, People liked The Daily Show, but they were turning on to see what John had to say every night. No question. Uh, and, and for me specifically, and I'm sure maybe for others, like during the George W. Bush years, I could not have survived without listening to John talk about it every night because it was- Must see, must see TV. Absolutely. It kept, yeah. me, it kept me mildly sane, right. I would say. Well, speaking of you know, listening to what John Stewart has to say, we hope you'll join us next week uh, for part two of our conversation with John Stewart, and uh, we'll see you then. Thanks. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Sound design and music by Jerry Danielson. Mixed and mastered by Brian Slusher. Recorded and edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the Sirius XM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.